This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from An Irishman, The Jimmy Dore Show, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, The Onion Radio News, NPR, Jim Hightower, The Young Turks, and Mumia Abu-Jamal with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. And today's episode does contain some hilarious profanity. I'm Jason Callery with the Financial News here in Limerick, Ireland, talking to an Irishman about Wall Street. Sir, what do you think is happening on Wall Street right now? I'll tell you what's happening on Wall Street right now. Total fucking chaos, sir. We've had these bunch of fucking wanking bankers on Wall Street who for the last 10 or 15 years have created or produced these hocus-pocus bunch of products like complicated derivatives and subprime mortgages that are bundled together, sold them to you and I with the blessing of the credit agencies. And of course we all know what happened in around 2007. Uh, all these hairy fairy schemes began to unravel. And you know, these fuckshites had gone to the hills with billions of dollars in bonuses. And of course 2008, uh, the government had to bail out the Wall Street crowd to the tune of approximately $1.3 trillion. And uh, by the government, you mean? By the government, I mean the hard-working people of the United States of America, the trades, the small businessmen, the firemen, the policemen, the nurse, and, of course, the future foundation of our society, teachers. And you know this, sir? One of these banks that was bailed out on Wall Street in 2008 to the tune of approximately $70 billion, this year, these greedy fuckers put aside for uh, their employees a bonus pool for the first six months of 2011 to the tune of eight and a half billion dollars. That's what's happening in Wall Street, sir. Greed, greed, and more fucking greed. I'm just curious, you mentioned Wall Street. Um, is there a Wall Street in Limerick? Uh, piss off, sir. I ain't going for a pint. president in the middle of a depression that's going to get even worse everyone's predicting it's going to get even worse uh decided to do the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do in a depression uh, which is uh stimulus spending he's, he's worrying about the deficit so he's now still again he's advancing republican talking points uh he's advancing more republic so let's listen to what he let's play the first clip and we'll see what he had to say and we'll come back and We'll let you know what he had to say. Okay. But all these reductions in spending by themselves will not solve our fiscal problems. We can't just cut our way out of this hole. It's going to take a balanced approach. If we're going to make spending cuts, many of which we wouldn't make if we weren't facing such large budget deficits, then it's only right that we ask everyone to pay their fair share. And that's why this plan eliminates tax loopholes that primarily go to the wealthiest taxpayers and biggest corporations. Tax breaks that small businesses and middle class families don't get. 
And if tax reform doesn't get done, this plan asks the wealthiest Americans to go back to paying the same rates that they paid during the 1990s, before the Bush tax cuts. I promise it's not because anybody looks forward to the prospects of raising taxes or paying more taxes. Mm, oh, Barack, you sound so dreamy. You sound just like the guy I remember from 2008 when you were oh, It's so nice to hear you say all those things I want you to say again, but I know you're full of shit and you don't really mean them. The reason why he's proposing this now is because he knows it will never pass and it makes him sound like a lefty uh, right before an election. Um, just like all the stuff he said about how he's going to put on a comfortable shoe and walk with the unions. And uh, it, so it's all, again, it's, this is just posturing by Barack Obama. He doesn't mean any of it. What I think is interesting is the reaction like in the news media about it by saying, oh, he's going to raise taxes by $3 trillion. And he's not. And he's not even raising taxes that much. I mean, if you look at this, it's $1.5 trillion in tax increases out of the $3 trillion. The rest is cuts, a trillion of which is Afghanistan, which I think is a smart thing to cut. But it's actually, it's not going to fix the economy. And it's not going to get people back to work. I think it's just posturing. I think he knows it's not going to, he'll never get these. Oh, he'll never get it passed by this Congress. He couldn't raise the taxes, uh, repeal the Bush tax cuts when he had control of Congress. He's certainly not going to do it now. When he had everything. Yeah. So Of course, he didn't, he also didn't try. No, right. When he, he had everything. Right. But now that, now that he can't get it done, he's, he's willing to put it on the table. Now he's going to pretend try. Right, so that's he's all. He's going to give it a college try. He's going to pretend try. He's going to propose stuff he knows that uh, it's never going to pass. And um, it's hard, though. I mean, he's he's in a tough position because if you look at the public and what the public is wanting from the president, okay, yeah, we've got this huge deficit here. It's kind of, but not really related to the economy. If we, you, what you're saying is, if we had, a, if we got rid of the deficit tomorrow, that wouldn't help the economy. No, no, it wouldn't. I'm, it, it wouldn't I'm make agree. a difference. It that's, wouldn't make a difference. Well, that's and that's the so what that's my my point originally is like he's out there doing the exact opposite. It's like he's when you say he's in a tough spot, it's he's in a tough spot because that he put himself in. I mean, <laughs> yes, because he wants to he wants to advance Republican ideas, mm -hmm. and he knows that the Republican ideas don't really work to create jobs. Right They they have the exact opposite. Of, like when you cut the deficit right now, it will actually create more joblessness right mm -hmm. instead of absolutely well so he, that's the tough spot he's in it's like how do i keep being a republican yet help the economy it comes down to every law we passed in the 50s 60s 70s worker protection environmental protection health care none of that means anything because you're betting it against the right. cost of 10 cents a day plus the cost of diesel fuel to ship it over the ocean so that's that, it so and that's when people talk about uh, a rigged economy when you oh, hear, it's totally rigged economy and it's rigged and it's rigged against the workers of the of the world um, well at least the workers of the United States right that's <laughs> right and it's well it's also rigged and against the workers like say uh, in other places because when they take a job from the United States and send it there they're being actually exploited they're not because they don't have you but know, they're and they're happy to be exploited because right. there's no other jobs but right it's also it, it all moves under this idea that somehow we live in a free market society here and we don't. I mean, anybody who knows anything about the government realizes that what the government is responsible for is regulating trade within the United States. You've had 40 or 50 years of people with a lot of money setting the rules to get us into this position that we're at right now. Right. And you, you can't somehow fix the economy without changing a lot of those rules. And they don't really address them. Right. So when, you, so when someone says we have a free market, 
What they mean is we have uh, the people with the most money are free to influence the rule makers that mm -hmm. set the rules for the market, which makes it rigged against you, the Absolutely. I want to get real quick to one more story. Republican Peter Schiff is on, was on Fox News saying the minimum wage should be three bucks an hour. This was on Fox and Friends, and he's a Republican businessman. He's a former Senate nominee. He claimed that the minimum wage was too high and that it actually affects the young and the poor in a negative way. And he had the nerve to say that the minimum wage is actually one of the most anti-poor people rules that exists. And uh, Michelle Bachman said she would want to completely eliminate the minimum wage as part of her plan to lower unemployment. So what we're seeing now, Lewis, is this idea that uh, we are going to fix jobs we're getting an incredible economic picture from Republicans. The jobs problem will be fixed by lowering taxes on the rich, even though we know that won't create any demand and jobs are driven by demand from the middle and lower class. And we want to fix jobs by lowering the minimum wage or having none so that people could be hired at two or three bucks an hour because that would actually get more people employed. Mm -hmm. Right. And pretty soon we'll be making China's clothing and your children will be working in sweatshops. Well, uh, that's what I was going yeah. to say. Let's, let's, if we want to really free up some money for hiring, right? If, if companies could hire people at two bucks an hour, but not at 875 or whatever the minimum wage is at right now, let's eliminate worker protections because those prevent people from hiring. If only you could have dangerous, cheap working conditions with no oversight, no human resources, you could save a ton of money and hire a few people at a couple bucks an hour. It's a great way to save money. Let's, mm -hmm. let's just do it all. Why not? Not to mention, if somebody is earning $3 an hour, you realize that at a 40-hour work week, that's $480 per month, or I guess at four and a third weeks per month, it's 500 bucks a month, roughly. How, how is that even really going to, to stimulate the economy when people are still going to be being able to, they're going to need all of the social programs, welfare programs that exist? I thought the goal of Republicans was to get people off of those programs. Mm -hmm. I don't get it. Minimum wage. Yeah! Lewis, what would you say is the number one reason people should tune into the David Pakman show if they like Jay Tomlinson's Best of the Left podcast? I mean, I see it completely differently from, from someone who's just watching it. Yeah, well, but if I was asking someone else's opinion for the promo... I don't even watch our show, so how can I answer that question? I do not watch our show. So Lewis is, isn't even a fan of the show. <laughs> Maybe the answer is Lewis doesn't actually like this show. Can you be show. a fan of the show? I mean, are you? Can, is, isn't that kind of stupid to be a fan of your own show? I'm a huge fan of this show. <laughs> of course. That's like being a fan of yourself. You're like a narcissist. What, do you put pictures up of yourself at home, too? Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. Peter Schiff, who 
got some acclaim because he predicted the, uh, was one of the, frankly, many people who predicted the meltdown, but of course was sort of ignored uh, by the media. I mean, um, Rubini being another, Atrios being another, uh, was on CNN, I guess, with Cornell West, trying to argue that the 1% gave workers weekends and child labor laws. And, you know, good for Schiff. He's been down to uh, Zuccotti Park. But he seems to think, where is this? Uh, he seems to think that 1% was responsible for child labor laws and weekends and 40-hour work weeks. Uh, I got news for you. Louis Brandeis was not a one percenter. <laughs> um, the Supreme Court, which ultimately, I mean, I guess to the extent you might say, like, you know, at the time, people who made it to the Supreme Court were elites. Well, I guess. But these laws were passed. Uh, and basically ran through the Supreme Court under the threat of court packing by FDR. And these were all presented from a um, very progressive legal position that outcomes were important and that the so-called freedom of contract, uh, words incidentally that do not exist in the Constitution, Uh, should not be used to keep people from unionizing, negotiating with employees, uh, a minimum wage, a uh, limited amount of work hours, child labor laws. This is absolutely uh, bizarre, the idea that any, anyone could think that it was the 1% who showered upon the peasants. The idea that... You don't have to work until uh, if you're only 12 years old. Why, just because you're starving and the company wants you to work 80 hours a work week, and if you don't, we'll fire you, the 1% said, oh, let's be benevolent. I'm glad he said that because it just shows people how deranged these libertarians are. No, a 40-hour work week, child labor laws, weekends, overtime, minimum wage, safety standards, can't lock your uh, workers, shirtwaist uh, triangle factory. Uh, these were not bestowed upon us by the 1%. It was taken. Taken. Uh, by people like unions, people like Brandeis, by people who uh, feel that uh, workers deserve some protections. Labor has value. And uh, so, um, I guess the answer is wrong.
It's the Onion Radio News. A Taco Bell employee is somehow dressed down by his manager. This is Doyle Redland reporting. As improbable as it sounds, Taco Bell employee Wayne Lorimer of Detroit, Michigan, was criticized by manager Cal Dyer during today's lunch rush. Lorimer, who was laid off earlier this year by the Ford Motor Company, seems both surprised and hurt by the whole thing. I thought I was already cut down to size just by working here, but Cal's lecture about paying more attention to the proper application of sour cream if I want to remain a valued member of the Taco Bell family, it certainly seemed to knock me down even further. Lorimer then added something about how he has sunk so low as to be under the thumb of a guy who probably never finished high school. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong, progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. By one measure, the U.S. economy has completely recovered from the last recession, GDP. The nation's gross domestic product is the sum total of everything the U.S. produces, and it's now back to where it was before the financial crisis. Of course, the country has more people now, and millions of them are unemployed. And as NPR's Robert Smith reports, GDP is not a perfect number. Oh, GDP. One number that contains multitudes. Everything we manufacture. Every plumber that fixed a sink or accountant that carried the one and divided by five, all goods and services are included. It was invented by Simon Kuznets during the Depression when everyone really wanted to know how bad it was. Now the number's put out by Steve Landefeld at the government's Bureau of Economic Analysis. It was uh, designed to do exactly what it does today, which is to pull together all the diverse pieces of economic data, some of which are going up, some of which are going down, some of which double count one another into one comprehensive and consistent picture of what was happening to the economy. And what does that comprehensive picture look like this week? A new record high. But just giving out the GDP is like talking about your grade point average in high school. It's useful, especially if you're applying to college, but like your grade point average, it paints a limited picture of who you really are. Likewise, there are omissions in the GDP. For instance, it's skewed by how well people at the top are doing. So the government can report that the GDP per person is going up, and it is going up, but a lot of us might not feel it. The share accruing to the top 1%, as we talk about it today, has grown. That has made the simple average of something like GDP per capita or personal income per capita less meaningful to the average person. It's a real number, but it perhaps doesn't reflect what they're seeing in their personal economic situation. Also, there's that list of what goes into the gross domestic product. So if you buy a New Jersey tomato, that increases the GDP. But if you grow a tomato, spend hours watering and weeding, 
that does not get included. If you pay a nanny to take care of your kids, GDP. If you stay home with the kids, no GDP. Yeah, that is hard to calculate. And not to pile on this poor number, but some people think that it includes too much. Environmentalists like to point out that a lot of industries are boosting GDP by doing damage to the environment. These are hidden costs. Herman Daly is an economist at the University of Maryland. He points to the Gulf oil spill, for example. BP spent billions of dollars on cleanup, containment booms, people to pick up tarballs. All of the expenditures on cleaning up the oil spill were then added to GDP. Now, see, that's asymmetric accounting. You're you're not <laughs> you're not counting the negative, and you're and you're adding in the positive. So even though the loss of oil revenues and shrimp sales were factored into GDP, nothing was subtracted for the oiled pelicans. Nothing was removed for the environmental damage itself. So even if you wanted to do this to GDP, is it possible? It's easy to measure when someone sells a tuna fish sandwich. How do you do the accounting for a dead fish in the wild? There's actually been some progress on this. Robert Mendelson, an economist at Yale, just put a real dollar figure on air pollution, and it wasn't easy. You have to include everything. The worst thing that happens is we we kill people prematurely, so illnesses, all the way down to an asthma attack, and then we also looked at ecosystem damages, loss of visibility. So you you mean the view over the Grand Canyon, if it's hazy, that's that has a cost associated with it? Yes, it does. That's actually part of the study. <laughs> Researchers showed people pictures of the Grand Canyon with and without smog, and asked, "How much is it worth to have that pristine view?" And then they add up all the costs: the deaths, the asthma, the view. You can, in theory, deduct that total from GDP. Mendelson estimates if you subtract pollution and global warming costs, GDP could be two percent lower than it is now. So I tried out all these criticisms of the GDP on Steve Landefeld, the man in charge of the number, and he was polite. Said that they do occasionally tweak the way the GDP is calculated, but he said right now it's hard enough to measure all the stuff that actually has price tags. Robert Smith, NPR News, New York. Bible does not say that money is the root of all evil; rather, it condemns the love of money. Today, that insidious love, taking the form of greed and excess, is celebrated in our country and has even been exalted into official public policy, marring our economy with inequality and injustice. The reigning ethos of our nation's upper crust is that too much is not enough. They're not merely out to make loads of the money they love, but to make a killing. Everyone else be damned. New numbers from the Congressional Budget Office confirm that as the moneyed elites have been making their killing, wealth disparity has become extreme in a country that once prided itself on trying to build a more egalitarian society. Analyzing 30 years of income data, the nonpartisan CBO reports that the richest one percent of our population has enjoyed a stunning 275 percent increase in their income during that time. As a result, these privileged few have more than doubled the slice of America's income pie that they consume, going from eight percent to seventeen percent of the whole in just three decades. From whom did these richest one percenters get their extra big slice? From us, the ninety-nine percent, 
The share going to middle class and poor families shrank in this period, which is why there is such broad support today for Occupy Wall Street's We Are the 99% movement. At the tippy top of America's wealth pyramid are the multimillionaire CEOs and billionaire Wall Streeters. They are the richest one one hundredth of one percenters, less than fifteen thousand households. These few now take six percent of all U.S. income, the biggest piece ever consumed by America's mega rich. This is Jim Hightower saying the widening chasm between the rich and the rest of us is transforming our country from a society to a jungle, and not even billionaires will enjoy living there. Necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Wherever I wander, wherever I roam, I couldn't be found of my big home. The bees are buzzing in the tree to make some honey just for me. When you look under the rocks and plants and take a glance at the fancy ants, then maybe try a few. So, another day, another lie by King of New York. Uh, I'm speaking, of course, of Michael Bloomberg. Uh, who more with every day passing with the Occupy Wall Street, it exposes him. This is one of the benefits of Occupy Wall Street. It is exposing the problems that we have in this country. It is exposing the interests of the elite establishment uh, by putting things into clear relief. So here is Michael Bloomberg uh, asked, I'm not sure in what context, in some type of interview about Occupy Wall Street. Here he is presenting one of the greatest ongoing lies per, uh, perpetrated by the right-wing machine to slam government, but also fed by the elite establishment in this country who want to make sure that banks can get away with not technically murder, but at least killing uh, the economy and the financial interests of uh, the 99% of the people in this country. Here is the billionaire mayor, Mike Bloomberg. What do you say to those people who are part of Occupy Wall Street? Uh, you know, I, I hear, well, everybody's got a different view of what they're uh, protesting. I hear your complaints. Some of them are totally unfounded. It was not the banks that created the mortgage crisis. It was plain and simple Congress who forced everybody to go and to give mortgages to people who were on the cusp. Now, I'm not so sure that was terrible policy because a lot of those people who got homes still have them, and they wouldn't have had them without that. But they were the ones that pushed Fannie and Freddie to make a bunch of loans that were imprudent, if you will. Uh, they were the ones that pushed the banks to loan to everybody. And now we want to go vilify the banks because it's one target. It's easy to blame them, and Congress certainly isn't going to blame themselves. At the same time, Congress is now trying to pressure banks to loosen their lending standards to make more loans. This is exactly what the, the same speech they criticized them for. Okay. So Bloomberg tells two very distinct lies here. The first was, it was not the banks that created the mortgage crisis. It was plain and simple Congress who forced everybody to go and give mortgages to people who were on the cusp. He is referring to the CRA, 
which was the Community Reinvestment Act, which was passed uh, back in the 70s. And he's saying Congress was go basically forced the banks to provide what are known as subprime loans to people with poor credit. And presumably, he goes on to say, uh, he goes on to say again, they were the ones who pushed Fannie and Freddie to make a bunch of loans that were imprudent. They were the ones that pushed the banks to loan to everybody. He's talking about the uh, Community Reinvestment Act, and he's talking about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are, though they weren't government agencies, there was a government-private partnership. From McClatchy, October 12, 2008. And there are, of course, multiple sources uh, for this. Contending that lending to poor and minority Americans caused Fannie and Freddie's financial problems, uh, federal housing data reveal that the charges aren't true. And that the private sector, the private sector, not the government or government-backed companies, was behind the soaring subprime lending at the core of the crisis. More than 84% of the subprime mortgages in 2006 were issued by lending institutions. This was the height, height of subprime lending. Private firms made nearly 83% of the subprime loans to low and moderate income borrowers that year. Only one of the top 25 subprime loans lenders in 2006 was directly subject to the housing law that being lambasted by conservative critics. In other words, there was only one entity that was even subject to the Community Reinvestment Act. Not even 20 percent, not even 20 percent of those private banks that made these subprime loans that failed were subject to the Community Reinvestment Act. If every loan forced upon these private entities by the Consumer Reinvestment Act failed, that would constitute only 20% of the failure of these subprime loans. Further, Fannie and Freddie didn't pressure lenders to sell them more loans. They struggled to keep pace with the private sector. They did not say, we're going to buy all these subprime loans. No, in fact, they weren't buying them until very late in the game because as private, part private institutions, they wanted to maintain a portfolio that was equal to, or at least in the range of the portfolios that private banks were maintaining of these subprime loans, just because otherwise they wouldn't be competitive. Investment banks, bankrupt non-bank lenders such as New Century and AmeriQuest, which underwrote most of the subprime loans, were not subject to the Community Reinvestment Act. Mortgage brokers also weren't uh, uh, subject to the Community Reinvestment, originated most of the subprime loans. So Bloomberg is lying. He is Lying about the Community Reinvestment Act, Congress did not force, quote, everybody to go and give mortgages to people who were on the cusp. He's also lying 
that Fannie and Freddie were pushed to make a bunch of loans that were imprudent. They didn't originate any of these loans. And they only, they only bought up a certain measure of these loans because of the rest of the market was already doing it well into 2006. So Bloomberg's lying, and surely, surely he knows this. Who knew a billionaire could be so loyal to his billionaire buddy? I want to be a billionaire so freaking bad by all of the things I never had. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. I want to be a billionaire. Often on the show, we tell you about uh, legalized corruption in the system that uh, there are many different ways that you can do that. You can do it through campaign donations. Uh, another way you can do it is by uh, offering jobs to staff members or to congressmen after uh, they leave office. Well, a guy uh, who should know a lot about this is Jack Abramoff. He was interviewed on 60 Minutes. Now, he got busted for doing some illegal actions, but what he's describing here really is not illegal at all. It's the legalized corruption that he's talking about that's endemic to the system, and, uh, boy, uh, after you hear this, you see exactly how it all works. Let's go to clip 15. When we would become friendly with an office and they were important to us, and the chief of staff was a competent person, uh, I would say, or my staff would say to him or her at some point, you know, when you're done working on the Hill, we'd very much like you to consider coming to work for us. Now, the moment I said that to them, or any of our staff said that to them, that was it. We owned them. And what does that mean? Every request from our office, every request of our clients, everything that we want, they're going to do. And not only that, they're going to think of things we can't think of to do. Exactly right. Exactly what we've been saying all along. And the problem isn't what's illegal. The problem is, is what is legal. He says, look, man, you're going to get paid later. Okay? So you play ball, and maybe you can come work for us and make real money. And all of a sudden, they own them. How bad was it? How many uh, congressional offices did they own? Let's talk about that. First, I, I think most congressmen don't feel they're being bought. Uh, most congressmen, I think, can, in their own mind, justify uh, the system, rationalize. Yeah. And by the way, we wanted as lobbyists for them to feel that way. By the way, that's another thing we always talk about, which is they don't go home and think, yeah, I'm going to take Abramoff's money and I'm going to get rich and I'm going to screw over my constituents or the people that I'm working for. No, they think, like, well, no, of course. But no, you know, they, that casino needed to pass for the good of my constituents. Yeah, 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 that's the ticket. I'll totally convince myself. So how many of them did this? Let's watch. How many congressional offices did you actually own? <laughs> uh, we probably had very strong influence in a hundred offices at a time. <gasps> Come on. 
No. A hundred offices. In those days, I would view that as a failure, because at least 335 offices that we didn't have strong influence. I mean, Look, I don't want to get too sidetracked on this, but Leslie Stahl is a little unbearable. Like, you've been doing 60 Minutes for how many decades, and that's like a huge shock to you that that lobbyists like Jack Abramoff come in and say, hey, we'll get you jobs afterwards, and then they get whatever they want. Did you not see any of the things that happened in Congress in the last 10 years, let alone all throughout the... How about Billy Tauzin, who wrote a bill for the big drug companies, left office immediately, got $2 million from the drug companies per year because of the bill that he wrote. Did you, you miss that, Leslie Stahl? And so when he says 100, she's like, oh! <laughs> it's not 100. It's 535, 435 in, in the Congress, 100 in the Senate. It's all of them. It's, uh, you know, Chris Dodd, who's a, a Democrat, writing it before he leaves office. It's Evan Bayh, who's a Democrat. It's every Republican. They go and they say, how much do you want? You're going to get millions. And they say, of course, uh, let me come up with a way to help you that you couldn't even imagine. That's what's wrong with the system. Legalize corruption. Abramoff explains just a little bit more how they did it now. So what we did was we crafted language that was so obscure, so confusing, so uninformative, but so precise to change the U.S. code. Here's what you tried to get right. tacked on to this reform bill. Yep. Public Law 100-89 is amended by striking Section 207, paren, 101, stat, period, 668 comma 672 close paren. Right. Now, isn't that obvious what that means? Uh, it was perfect. It was perfect. So that's what you tried to get inserted. Yes. And that was going to provide for a casino. Yes. And who on earth is going to know that? No one except the chairman of the committees. Who stuck it in there. Yes. And that's one of the things you used to do. Yes. And it was deliberately written like that. Precisely. Yes. And that's done a lot. Members don't read the bills. That's done every single time. <laughs> Leslie Stoll's like, really? Seriously? They don't read the bills and they stick it in there. Yeah, of course they stick it in there. <laughs> we don't have a democracy anymore, man. Here, I'll give you one more example. A guy who used to work on uh, Capitol Hill said that, you know, and I've told this story before, that every time that they went to go write a piece of legislation for the Dodd-Frank financial reform bill, uh, they would see, they would erase this part of the, this obscure part of the legislation, and then it would pop back up at every version of the bill, new version of the bill. And they're like, why? Why does it keep back, popping back up when we have actively gotten rid of that provision in Congress? And he went and tr tried to trace it and figure out why. Turns out that every new version of the bill was written by the Fed. And that the Fed then went to the big banks, who actually run the Fed, and said, can you write this? So the bank lobbyists wrote every single version of the financial reform bill. That's why those obscure provisions kept popping back up, which actually gave billions of our money to the big banks. That's how it works.
That's the Onion Radio News. A working man is proud of a job he hates. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Eagle Cooling Corporation employee Brent Feske of Janesville, Wisconsin, takes great pride in the semi-skilled blue-collar job he detests. The 39-year-old veteran solderer had this to say while trying to get a bag of corn nuts from the break room vending machine. I- I'm the I'm the real deal. I know this job cold, and at the end of a long, horrible day of back-breaking manual labor, that makes me feel pretty. Good. Pesky, whose recent purchase of a 2004 Dodge Dakota financed with a six-year loan, virtually guaranteeing his continued slave-like existence, plans to get shit-faced after work this Friday. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. Money 
manage all. The descendants of Achilles and Odysseus, and of Caesar and Hadrian, bound to the bankers. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Americans have been wrestling with some big political issues, and at times like this, some lean on the big ideas of famous political and economic thinkers. Today we start a series of reports on big thinkers of the past whose acolytes hope they will shape the future. These are people whose ideas turn up constantly in the news, even if you don't always hear their names. They are people like the economist Friedrich Hayek. And John Maynard Keynes. And then there's a writer of fiction whose admirers want to make her ideas real. Her name was Ayn Rand. NPR's Andrea Seabrook has the story. Ayn Rand is best known for her novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. The ideas behind them, her philosophy, have sunk so deeply into our political thought, most people don't even recognize them as her ideas anymore. But Rand does have important admirers: Republican Budget Chairman Paul Ryan, former Fed Chief Alan Greenspan, and recently House Speaker John Boehner channeled Rand when he said, "Job creators in America basically are on strike." Underpinning that statement is a philosophy Rand introduced through her best-selling novel Atlas Shrugged. Ironically, when it was first released in the late 1950s, it wasn't exactly embraced. Throughout the United States, small pockets of intellectuals have become involved in a new and unusual philosophy, which would seem to strike at the very roots of our society. CBS News journalist Mike Wallace interviewed Rand years before he first appeared on the program 60 Minutes. It's 1959. Wallace is in a chair on a stark set, holding his notes and a cigarette. Across from him, Ayn Rand, a native Russian, small and sharp, a little nervous. Wallace asks her to outline the ideas she calls objectivism. It is, she says, a system of morality. A morality not based on faith. On faith. Not on faith. Not on arbitrary whim. Not on emotion. Not on arbitrary edict. But on reason. A morality which can be proved by means of logic. Rand wholly rejected religion. She called it a weakness, even a parasite, one that convinces people their purpose is to work for the betterment of others. In fact, she says, for man, the truth is just the opposite. That his highest moral purpose is the achievement of his own happiness. The achievement of his own happiness. Wallace asks her, how does this apply to politics, to government? And this is interesting. Listen to the journalist's assumptions about the America of that time. Eisenhower in the White House. Leave it to Beaver on the TV. Now, one of the principal achievements of this country in the past 20 years, particularly, I think most people agree, is the gradual growth of social, 
protective legislation based on the principle that we are our brother's keepers. Welfare, social security, fair labor standards, public health programs. How do you feel about the political trends of the United States? I feel that it is terrible that you see destruction all around you and that you are moving toward disaster until and unless all those welfare state conceptions have been reversed and rejected. These programs are destroying individual liberties, Rand says, especially the freedom of producers, entrepreneurs, businessmen. The government has no right to take their property, she says. I imagine that you're talking now about taxes. Sam. And you believe that there should be no right by the government to tax. You believe that there should be no such thing as unemployment compensation, regulation during times of stress. That's right. I'm opposed to all forms of control. I am for an absolute, laissez-faire, free, unregulated economy. By now, these ideas should sound familiar. At the time, Rand's novels were almost universally panned. Her ideas were called the height of immorality. Her followers, the objectivists, were seen as a radical sideshow in politics and economics. But now? Every time you submit to a regulation, it diminishes your liberty. Iowa Republican Congressman Steve King loves Rand, he says, speaking just off the House floor a few weeks ago. Freshman Republican Congressman Mick Mulvaney of South Carolina has read Rand's novels six or eight times each. It's almost frightening how accurate a prediction of the future the book was. In Atlas Shrugged, what Rand considered her masterpiece, the wealthy corporate producers are the engines of the American economy, but they're constantly stymied by invasive legislation and terrible government regulations. That's exactly what Florida Republican Ellen West sees happening in America today, and he says it's very dangerous. Because if you start to demonize a certain segment of your society that are the producers, eventually they'll stop. That's just what they did in Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged. Her wealthy heroes go into hiding, leaving behind the welfare class, what Rand calls the moochers, and the government, or the looters. Put in today's language... Job creators in America basically are on strike. This idea, House Speaker Boehner put forth in a recent speech before the Economic Club of Washington, D.C., could have come straight from Atlas Shrugged. Businesses, Boehner said, need to be set free. Instead, and they've been antagonized by government that favors bureaucrats over market-based solutions. They've been demoralized by a government that causes despair when what we really need is to provide reassurance and inspire hope uh, in our economy. Boehner uses the language of slavery when he says, we need to liberate our economy from the shackles of Washington. Back in 1959, interviewer Mike Wallace asked Rand if her ideas are so right, why hadn't Americans in their democracy voted to protect the all-important producer class? Her answer? Because the people hadn't been given that choice. Both parties today are for socialism, in effect, for controls, and there is no party. There are no voices to offer an actual pro-capitalist, laissez-faire economic freedom and individualism. That is what this country needs today. If Ayn Rand were alive today, she might be pleased to see that more and more Americans do have that choice, and her ideas are alive and well represented in the United States Capitol. Andrea Seabrook, NPR News, Washington. Almost never does I have a name. 
Maybe has a pitchfork, maybe has a tail, but evil is alive and well. It might walk upright from out of the inferno, maybe coming horseback through deep snow. It's ragged and fat, it's hungry as hell, and evil is alive and well. How evil is alive, evil is well. Evil is alive, evil is well. On your feet to the tower and yell. Evil is alive and well. Libertarians are the paradigmatic, born on third base types. <clears throat> they have no appreciation or understanding that society for hundreds of years has built up the material wealth and comfort they benefit from. Mm -hmm. It's just rationalizing their own entitlement. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Now that government has built the roads, the infrastructure, created society structure, we don't need it anymore, man. We've outgrown it. Till those roads get cracked in two years. Well, then just private enterprise will come in. Well, what? Why would? Why would someone build a road to any of the rural places that you live, Chief? I mean, seriously, where's the profit in that? You just build dense roads. I mean, look, there's a story today. I didn't even I didn't pull this one. Potlatch, Idaho. Barry Ramsey owns a small manufacturing company here between two mountains. Remember the day his internet connection crashed for several hours. It crashed because bears had been rubbing against towers. <laughs> I read that. I read that. According to a new study, they are among the problems that have earned Idaho as an unfortunate distinction. It had the slowest internet speeds in the country earlier this year, residential customers who are downloading things uh, like games, a dismal average of 318 kilobytes per second. That's like below dial-up speeds. That's like what we have when everyone's uploading something at the same time here, like huge video files. In Idaho, it would take you 9.42 seconds to download a standard music file compared with 3.3 seconds in Rhode Island. Now, you should understand that relative to the rest of the world, our rates suck. Yeah. Our rates suck. Our wireless rates suck. Now, why might that be? There's the private market doing their job. Well, if you don't like it, you could just get phone service from Norway. <laughs> could just lay down your own fiber optics. That's right. This is a perfect example why you need government to come in and say, if you're going to get the lucrative contract, for a certain part of a county, you're going to get the use of our, uh, our commonly owned frequencies, then you must deliver high-quality broadband to everyone. But what about our freedom? What about our freedom to have bad internet, man? <laughs> Why don't you love freedom? <laughs> You know, thinking about it, though, the second you would do that to any Ron Paul fans' internet access, they'll turn on Ron Paul mighty fast. No, they just, no, no, that's the point. Because there's thousands of examples of that. But they just ignore it. That just exists. That just, that's just there. That's the whole point. They grow up, they get born on third base. They have no idea what, what came before them. I mean... 
They wouldn't be able to comment on YouTube's were it not for the government creating the Internet. Yeah, it's true. Check on Wikipedia. We turn to Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan. Apparently, he feels put upon. He thinks that uh, American people are not grateful enough to his beloved Bank of America that he's running. How dare you not praise the wonderful CEO of Bank of America? Well, he's very upset about it. Talking to his uh, fellow Bank of America uh, employees, Bloomberg reports that he said, I like you get a little incensed when you think about how much good all of you do. Whether it's volunteer hours, charitable giving we do, serving clients and customers well, you ought to think a little about that before you start yelling at us. All right, look, everybody talks about the $5 debit card fee that Bank of America charged. People are upset about that, and so they're not in a charitable mood about how great Bank of America is. But I think that's a, honestly a tiny issue. It's important to a lot of folks uh, that have to pay it, obviously. But the much larger issue is Bank of America taking all their derivatives bets. That's just pure gambling. I swear to you. I know people say that, and I get a feeling sometimes people don't believe it. It's true. It's it's. It's just like Vegas. It's not Bank of America say, Bank of America saying, "I want to insure mortgages that I have." It's Bank of America saying, "Hey, Jesus got a mortgage from Lucas. I'm going to bet on it. That mortgage is worth $100,000. Who cares? I'm going to put a hundred million dollar bet on it." That's what they're doing, and they just transferred so many of those bets to the part of their bank that has your money, the depositor's money. Now you think the CEO doesn't know that? Of course he knows that. So he knows that he's gambling with your money. But nonetheless, he goes out and says in public that you should be thanking him. And that you are insolent for not appreciating what a lovely human being he is and what a lovely bank he runs. Except for the last time that they all crashed it together and went bankrupt and had to get bailed out by us. At that point, was he thankful to us? No. Just as always, they said, we deserve more. We want our bonuses. And we don't want any of your rules or regulations so that we can crash it again. And I guarantee to you, Brian Moynihan, along with all the other banking executives, will crash their banks and will crash our economy again. And then they will say, no one could have seen it coming. And then they'll ask for another bailout. And then indignant, several years later, they'll come back around and say, you should be thanking us. (laughs) I don't think so. I got something for you, but it ain't thanks. Hey, Jay, this is Todd from an occupied Los Angeles. Um, 
first I want to say, great episodes, lady. Really proud to, uh, to be a member of the, of the show. Great work. And uh, I love the idea of the guy making CDs of your shows and giving them to people. I, that's a brilliant idea, and I'm going to make some CDs myself. But I wanted to, to respond to uh, Joseph calling about the Fairness Doctrine. Now, I didn't really get exactly which version of the Fairness Doctrine that he, he was specifically talking about. Um, you know, and I don't know how old he is, but, um, you know, he seems really uh, misinformed about what the Fairness Doctrine was, at least in the 70s and 80s and before then, and, and the results of that, um, you know, because... I, I grew up most of my life as a kid, you know, where the Fairness Doctrine was part of the compact with the broadcasters using the trust of the airwaves when networks actually felt an obligation to do public service. He was saying that it was keep chill of, of free speech. Well, the Fairness Doctrine wasn't about free speech. It was about balance and, you know, not letting people just totally run amok with their baseless accusations. You know, he, he mentioned that he thinks that a lot more right-wing people would get onto other shows when, um, in actuality, if they brought that back as it was back in, you know, the 70s and stuff like that, there would be a lot more left-leaning people on shows because right now the mainstream media is run amok with right-wing opinion. Uh, not right-wing facts, because they have little facts behind any of the things that they say. Recently, I, I believe the FCC, you know, fully abandoned it, not that it's been enforced for, for years, um, but I think that's a sad moment, a sad moment for not only progressives, but for all Americans, as we move less and less from facts-based media into infotainment and just histrionic opinions. So um, thanks very much. Stay awesome. Hi, this is Eric from Sydney. Uh, I want to say thanks, Steve, Chicago, for reminding us all of the uh, elements of nonviolence as put forth by Martin Luther King. It was uh, well said then and even better said now. Hi, Jay. Uh, this is Erland. I am driving through cornfields in Indiana right now, and I've just got two comments. Uh, I'm uh, 65 years old and just this year signed up for Medicare, which uh, the Republicans would have you believe that it's free and that it's an entitlement. Uh, I will tell you, I've worked my life putting money into this, and uh, I'm glad it's there, so at least I can get basic coverage. But the basic coverage, parts A and B, gives you nothing. You really need to buy the extra coverages of D and F in order to get medication, hospital coverage, and all. And that's not free. It costs a lot of money. And my wife and I are spending well over $500 a month for the two of us to buy insurance. And we had to buy it through a private insurance company to have it uh, qualify for Medicare. So I hope those people that are getting up to my age and wanting to get that nice coverage they've had uh, maybe with their workplace, that it is not free if you want decent coverage. And don't let anybody try and tell you it is. The next thing is, is my daughter, like a lot of young people today, has been to college, got her master's degree, 
and now has this just this whopping big debt that she's trying to take care of. She can't get a job that will earn her enough money to make the payment. And so we, as retired people, are making those payments for her because we do believe in paying off our debt. My question is this. Uh, I've just refinanced my house to a 4.375. My daughter's got a 9% student loan. Is there anybody out there that could make a contribution to us to tell us, is there any way in the world we can refinance her student loan? We can refinance houses. Why can't the students whose families do pay their debts and want to pay their debts, why we can't refinance our student loan? Does anybody that knows that, I really appreciate hearing about it on your program. Thank you, Jay. I listen to your show religiously while I'm riding my bicycle uh, all around uh, in the Midwest. And I take that bicycle everywhere and ride it and listen to your show. I really do appreciate it. It's a, it's a great help to fight off people like Fox News. Uh, I'll keep on listening, Jay, and please keep it up. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So today, with all the talk about uh, libertarianism and supporting unions and those sorts of things, uh, it, it got the idea kicking around in my head of a concept that I definitely think about in my personal life and I think I've brought up on the show before, a concept called selfish altruism. And you know, I think that libertarianism – falls to the same same bit of logic that any economic system falls to when it doesn't take into consideration human nature. And, you know, communism is famous for this. Uh, communism sounds like a great idea if only people worked that way. Uh, but we don't. You know, we're not wired to, to work in a communist system, so it can't possibly work. And libertarianism is effectively in a lot of ways the exact opposite of, of communism it's every man for himself everyone should mindfully pursue their own self-interest and everyone will be better off for it uh, but you shouldn't really take other people's feelings into consideration and so that plays into the the, the selfish bit of human nature but what it completely disregards is the fact that humans are only successful as a species because we're capable of working together uh, you know, in, individually, we're really, really pathetic, <laughs> and uh, and only when we get together can we, you know, have we become what many would consider a successful uh, species. So, selfish altruism is is my you know answer to that. It's it's the idea that you can you can play into all of your selfish in instincts as long as you recognize that helping other people actually actively helps you in return. And so you can be as selfish as you want, but a lot of your selfishness should be helping other people. And it's, uh, it's, it's hard for some reason for a lot of people to make that logical jump because they, they you know, they might not see the, uh, uh, the results immediately, but they really are there. And, you know, the, the same concept can be applied to the idea of our taxation paying for, you know, public police and fire departments and, and even public schools. I mean, you, you pay for public schools with property taxes, whether you have kids or not, and then you benefit because then the people who grow up in your society aren't morons. 
and then you have a, a moderately educated society who you get to interact with. And that's much better for everybody. So I just want to bring this up and, and mention that so that, you know, with, with the holidays upon us, many people will be having conversations with people they don't often have conversations with. And you may have that person in your family or in your life in general who thinks they're a good person because, you know, they don't hate the gays and they don't mind if, if pot's legalized. And they say, hey, like, I just want to be left alone and I, you know, I don't want to bother anyone else and I don't want them to bother me. And so I just want to give you a little bit of ammo to say, you know what, like, you would actually be pursuing your own best self-interest if you helped out other people. So that's going to be it for today. I'm just going to thank a couple of members before I go. Gordon B. signed up for a leftist yearly membership back on March 22nd, and Ronald S. signed up for a leftist monthly membership back on February 16th and has stuck with the show since then. Uh, so huge thanks to Gordon and Ronald and all the members and donors who helped keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you guys, as you know very well by now. Everyone can support the show just by continuing to tell everyone you know about it and by spreading uh, individual clips through your social networks or by email or however you like, including the commentary I just did on selfish altruism. That'll be up there as well. All that is in the show notes. Links to spread individual clips couldn't possibly be simpler. Just check that out at the website. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. You can even donate your Facebook and Twitter accounts to help us spread the word even more. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show, from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, Burning on a shiny sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Who shadow bases the floor Who'll take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fond farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like